This week, The Husbands of River Song. Written by Stephen Moffat, directed by Douglas McKinnon. It turns out the secret to having a really good relationship with River Song is to just give her a little head. listening to Oi Spaceman, a Doctor Who love story. We're a polyamorous husband and wife taking a critical and often sociopolitical look at all eras of Doctor Who. This podcast often contains spoilers, naughty language, and general disregard for most things Stephen Moffat and other adult content. You can't see it, but I'm wincing. I am Flames, flames on the side of my face. <laughs> that is a Madeline Kahn in oh Clue yes reference. Okay, I haven't uh, seen Clue in a long time, so yeah. yeah. But yeah, uh, okay, sure, why not? Um, it's as it's, it's good a summary of the episode as any. I think. Sure, why not? <laughs> so welcome. This is episode seventy-four of Voice Spaceman, a Doctor Who love story. I'm Daniel. That's Shannon. You heard over there, and um. Yeah. Today we're going to be talking about The Husbands of River Song. Uh, it's our last episode of 2015, so I think we're going to talk a little bit about how our 2015 went and kind of what we're planning for next year. And we have to cover just a little bit of Earthshock, because we didn't do that last week. Earthshock, the episode that never was, kind of was, was too boring to record, and we recorded it anyway. So, uh, there have been three stories, uh, so let's just, let's just do our talk real quick and yeah. get it out of the way. Um, there have been three stories that we actually watched for this podcast and then didn't end up doing a an episode on. Um, and the three so far are we were going to do The Web of Fear, and we were going to do The Mask of Mandragora, and then we got to Earthshock. And uh, we actually recorded for Earthshock, and once I started like editing it, I realized it was incredibly boring. Like Our conversation was just, we meandered. We had maybe 15 minutes of actual conversation. And then we stretched it to an hour, and it was it was kind of like Shana was Shana was leaning back on the couch and and falling asleep. Like you couldn't even hear her for half of the audio because she like it was that she was that unenthused about talking about. I it was so boring until like the last five minutes. I think you know what's funny is like I kept trying to goose you to get you interested in like talking about something. And Shannon just completely was like not feeling it at all. So um, I, I just I felt like I had the same thing to to say over and over again, and that was I was just kind of bored. So anyway, um, we decided not to record on Earth. I mean, I decided not to put that episode out. You know, back in the day, back in the early days, I might have gone ahead and just put it out and just been like, yeah, not the best episode, but hey, we're, we're but you know, we we are starting to like. I feel like I have a certain we're building an audience, and I feel like we have a certain like. Uh, desire for quality here, so so no more no more shitty episodes. At least we're gonna try not to do any more shitty ones. Well, no shittier than the ones we've already done anyway. You know, so that's the uh, that's the plan. Um, so yeah, the big thing about Earthshock Earth is really that Adric dies at the end. Yeah, and kind of talking about what what Adric means for the show and what Adric means. And uh, I think the best way to do that is next time we do a Zoe story, we'll kind of talk about how Zoe and Adric are kind of do a little compare and contrast. Um, so we'll definitely do that at some point in yeah. 2016. Um, because that's at where we ended up going is how they were both depicted, how their intelligence was depicted, and you know, Adric's last line of 
his his last concern being whether or not he knew he was right or not and what exactly are we supposed to take away from that so i don't want any of our listeners who may be adric fans to feel like i'm saying like blah i'm actually not it was like the rest of the how many parts were there? <laughs> there are four parts. Yeah, it was like three of out of four just did nothing for me. The last episode, I was just like, but what? And I could talk about that a lot, but we're going to talk about it more in the context of Zoe to not bore me to tears, apparently. <laughs> well, I think if we'd, uh, I mean, it really was kind of the, the, the reason that that episode is important is because it's like the return of the Cybermen after several years, and yeah. then, um, Adric's death, which um still the only really long-term companion to actually die on the show. I mean, Clara is stuck in a Charlie-esque... Char- Charlie did not die. Uh, pardon me. Char- uh, Clara did not die. Clara, Clara, I mean, she died, but then she came back, and I'm sorry that doesn't count for me. Okay. You know, She's off adventuring with me, which I think is great that she gets to go adventure with me, but she didn't die. Like, there's, you know... I don't care if the Doctor did spend four billion years bashing his head against a wall to, uh, to save her. She's not dead. Okay, um, moving on. Anyway, sorry, we're, we're, I just keep coming back to that. It's, uh, anyway. So, let's, uh, any other thoughts about Earthshock while we're, while we're sitting here? Or you want to just kind of move on into the, the big topics we have? I really focused on, uh, maybe we'll include this as part of our future episode. The only part that I was really interested in was the dynamics of the characters in that fourth episode. Um, I think, all of our main four, the Doctor, Tegan, uh, Nissa, and Adric, have some really interesting acting moments. And no, Matthew Waterhouse is not the best actor. Um, but I think Tegan and Nissa both have really interesting characters. Well, Tegan gets to be a space marine. She gets her famous mouth on legs line. I mean, there's... She has a lot of cool stuff. There's just not a lot around it. Unfortunately yeah. for me, and I even think that um, Peter Davison is very subtle in his performance. Peter Davison, I mean, there's some really good stuff in Earthshock, yeah. but it's ultimately not very fun to kind of sit and talk about. It's um, not, uh, at least not for us, not for the kinds of things we like to talk about. Nope. I mean, Shana was barely paying attention watching the episode, much barely less paying about attention. It. I mean, she was just kind of like, "Does I she, could not be engaged." At one point, you looked at me and said, "Does this have subtitles?" Because I, I can't. You couldn't understand the cyber leader, and you know that sort of thing as well. Yeah, I, I couldn't understand the cyber leader. I, I really disliked this version of the Cybermen. Well, they're coming back, and I think we'll eventually do another one of the Cybermen stories. Although I don't have one on our immediate docket to do, but we'll eventually kind of come back to the eighty Cybermen. Yeah. Um, so there, there was just a lot that was just off for me, and maybe we'll come back to it when I have more context of the eighties Doctor I, Who. I mean, it's not a very good story. It's it's just okay. let, let's just it, it's just not. As um, long as we're all on the same page, there. Um, there, there's just there's not much going on. There are some there are a handful of interesting things, but like filling a filling an episode with it was it was it was a bad decision to try, and right. I was going to try to kind of turn it into a kind of a referendum on Adric. But I think you were so bored with Earthshock, you couldn't even, like, get your interest up enough to even, like, talk about the rest of Adric. I might re-release that episode at some point as, like, a, if I ever miss a week and go, okay, look, the lost episode, check out what we had to say about Earthshock. Um, but it was, it was... That time we yawned through things. Yep. Ah, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, the time. The so time look I tried forward to, to that audience. The time I tried to force an, an episode on Shana and said, "No, we're gonna we're gonna still talk about this." And no, really, we're gonna watch this. Let's move on. We're we're um, gonna talk about the husbands of River Song today. Woohoo! This is our 2015 Christmas special. We've yeah, watched it buddy. twice. Uh huh. Um, we actually just finished watching it uh, for the second time mm-hmm. a little bit ago, maybe 30 minutes ago. So um, it's pretty fresh on our minds. Yeah. So just to let you know, and any any listeners out there who might be uncomfortable uncomfortable by this, we are going to talk about sex in this episode, um, um, and and some politics, and Jesus, um, yes. and we're because we're not huge fans of River Song in general. We have issues with that. Um, and, you know, I really understand. I have some really good friends, people who are big Doctor Who fans, who love River Song and just immediately bond with her and just mm-hmm. love her. And I don't have a problem with that. Like, if you just love this character, that's fine. But you may not want to listen to this episode if, if any of the above is going to um, make you upset. Um, but well, we're going we to talk about sex. Quite and a bit, I want to say, as I have said before, I don't like River Song because of her unfulfilled potential. And part of that is sexuality. Mm-hmm. And part of that is um, consistency. Um, so that you get a sense of character building. Are that that's essentially what we're going to talk about. But Shannon, and I, Shannon, and I actually had, like watching this episode the second time. We she kept making me pause it so that we could kind of debate about like what the character's motivation were. Like, where does this happen in the timeline again? Why is this happening this and, way? And I think that like if you, I think the thing with River Song. I mean, kind of big picture. Let's just let's just kind of talk. I mean, I, I kind of have planned at one point to do like a. Straight up, we're going to watch all the River Song episodes in the order in which they're supposed to have happened, um, and then kind of talk about River Song as a as a character. That's a lot of viewing for us to have to watch a lot of. And uh, I looked at the list of all the uh, River Song episodes. All but one episode that has River Song in it were written by Stephen Moffat, um, and the and the other one is uh, it's a big character flaw. The, the the other one is written by Gareth Roberts, our, our good friend Gareth Roberts, there, right wing douchebag Gareth Roberts. Yeah. So we were we were talking about this while we were uh, watching it. You know, mm-hmm. we kept stopping it and kind of talking. Yeah. And I think that River Song makes sense. Like the narrative that we're given makes sense if you kind of use headcanon to imagine all the stuff that's happening in between. I mean, so much of the the River Song story, this it's being told out of order. It's being told out of order without a specific plan ahead of time, and it's being told. In ways that, like, you just have to kind of accept that the character does what the character does because the character does it. And then you have to kind of work backwards to figure out the motivation afterwards. Which I, I think the performance, like Alex Kingston's uh, charm, is supposed to kind of uh, carry you over. And so if you do have this emotional connection to the way that Kingston plays the character, and you have an emotional connection to just Kingston and to that, to this version of the character in your head, I think you're carried along with the river, in the river longs. River Long, the River Song story, much, much better than I think you and I I are, where I just don't buy her at all. And and I think that that's the thing, is I think River Song is a romantic gesture of a character. Mm -hmm. She is not a fully realized character. And in this episode, we get this kind of big romantic gesture, and, and that is its own thing. I understand why people want to love her, and I want to love her the same way. Um, but for me, there's just so much 
potential, the backbone that we're just supposed to assume that she has because she says she has it. Um, but we never get to see that. Uh, we get to see her in all these vulnerable moments with the doctor because she loves him and apparently she doesn't know that he loves her back, which doesn't really make sense. Apparently, I was looking at her character page on the TARDIS wiki and apparently there are many occasions where she's mentioned not believing the doctor loves her. I have some thoughts about, like, kind of what this is and it comes down to casting, quite honestly. Big picture on Husbands of River Song and I'll just kind of, you know, yeah. in terms of the story. This definitely feels like a return to the 11th Doctor era, um, whereas the, yeah. the Capaldi era, I mean, I think, and this is something I, I, I haven't really talked about much on the show, uh, but I think that there's been a clear discontinuity in terms of, like, the way that stories are told yeah. between the um, the 11th Doctor and the 12th Doctor eras. You know, the, the two Doctors, I mean, you're definitely, Moffat writes the 12th Doctor stories differently, even though he's kind of coming back to some of the same tropes. Uh-huh. There's definitely, he definitely takes a different tone with it. And this, even though it is the Twelfth Doctor and it's written as the Twelfth Doctor, I don't have a problem with that. But the story around him feels much more kind of madcap, zany, manic. Um, well, and, and to be honest, like, I think Peter Capaldi sells it so much better than Matt Smith ever well, did. Well, you, um, you and I are not fans of Matt Smith's performance uh, in general. I don't think he's, I mean... I'm sure he's a perfectly nice guy, and I'm sure, you know, he's a perfectly good actor. He might be a fine actor. I don't buy him as the Doctor at all. No, and again, this might be just an issue of, you know, you and I don't buy the truly Moffat characters. Um, I think Peter Capaldi brings something to his performance in this episode that I'm willing to go with him wanting to be zany because there's somebody who knows him but won't believe it's him. And him just finding that surreal and funny. And it's a Christmas episode, so well, I get that. And it's River, and he's supposed to like River, and he wants to kind of go with her and kind of like see, like he just wants to be with her again, yeah. you know? <laughs> and it's it's all the way up until like, it really kind of just feels like River River's kind of dumb. It takes her a little while to catch on. And so I'm like, well, is she supposed to be younger at this point? I, I think and that... suddenly, how old she's or at what point in her timeline? I mean, she says she's like two hundred, right? And this is supposed to be the end of. I mean, one of the things that we were talking about yeah. off mic was the way that this is written at the beginning. You know, where you know River Song is kind of badass archaeologist going around and doing things. Mm-hmm. Originally, like when the guy says, "I'm the Doctor," she should like at least it should twinge to something, right? So I think. It feels like originally this was written to be sort of the idea that this is the first time that River meets the Doctor, that River meets the 12th Doctor yeah. at first in her timeline. And then eventually, like, kind of they just decided to make it like, no, she's just um, doesn't believe that he can have more than 12 faces. And so, like, it feels like it started off as one thing. Like, yeah. it was written, like, the, the kind of the madcap rompiness of it was written to be this was kind of River's first interaction with the Doctor. Yeah. And then when it kind of found out, well, this is probably going to be the last time Stephen Moffat's going to write River Song, possibly the last time we're ever going to see River Song in the series. Yeah. Then they just decided to write, oh, well, I guess we'll just make it her last time. We'll actually kind of give the fans closure on that, which is fine. But it does feel like you're getting kind of a couple of different versions of River. Does it fill in gaps? Yes. In any kind of order that makes sense? No. And I think that that's always been my issue with that character, is mm-hmm. I want her to be what everybody thinks she is, but as as somebody who is a critical viewer, I, I refuse to just give in to the fan culture 
the well, fan stories the on, on fan, paper yeah a canonically queer character yeah uh sexually aggressive middle-aged woman or sexually aware i don't want to say aggressive in a negative way but a, yeah. you know a woman who's come from one her own body who desires sexual interactions with the people around her you know a female captain jack which is sort of the way she's originally right. portrayed in science in the library and sort of what we get here i love that as a character quite Absolutely. honestly like, like, like that's that's a character i'd love i mean i want to watch the river song adventures you know what i mean yeah i think for me one of the one of the things that always has been a stumbling block in terms of me kind of getting on the river train is that I never bought her relationship with the Eleventh Doctor, with Matt Smith's Doctor, partly because I don't believe the Eleventh Doctor could give someone an orgasm if he killed himself to do it. I mean, the Eleventh Doctor is so aggressively sex negative through and his entire run, yeah. and such a man child. The Tenth Doctor, I believe he knows his way around a click. Like that's just the thing, you know. I I think he's he's doing fine. The Ninth Doctor, I think he can make you come just by looking at you, right? Like, that's just kind of my, my feeling on, on the Doctors. Um, I may say more about you than the Doctors themselves, but I, I, I see where you're going. I understand what you're saying. And the Twelfth Doctor, I, I believe, could could stand up and, and be the equal to this sexually adventuresome woman. I, I believe that even though Capaldi kind of gets written in certain bits as being not understanding human interactions and stuff... Yeah. In the performance, and once you kind of take away some of the nonsense that Moffat just puts into that character, I mean, I believe Capaldi when he looks at her and he says, "Hello, sweetie." I believe that I believe that moment. It works for me. Yeah. Um, I believe these two characters stand as equals, whereas the Eleventh Doctor is just so insubstantial and inconsequential. I just don't believe that character could stand to could, it stands next to River Song in a cohesive way. Well, and a lot of that has to do with their rapport, and uh, that has to just do with them as actors. But it has it. It just keeps. It goes back to like, I don't know why I'm so obsessive about him. Like this only makes sense if this is near the beginning of her storyline. Because for me, all those episodes with Matt Smith feel like the, a response to a relationship she used to have. With mm. the doctor. Right. And she doesn't really still have, because Matt Smith seems like, you know... <laughs> An over-eager over puppy dog. Yeah, he's just like, what? Well, and we've talked, to, I mean, we've talked to quite a bit way back when, not recently, mm -hmm. about kind of the 11th Doctor as the kind of creepy boyfriend, as kind of the, the ultimate nice guy syndrome, the, the yeah. kind of... <laughs> all the stuff about the uh, toxic masculinity and abusive yeah. relationship stuff that we talked about with Kilgrave in our Jessica Jones episode. Yeah. I mean, the 11th Doctor... Is that? I mean, you know, he he literally like uh, when he's trying to get Claire yeah. to come with him in the TARDIS. You know, he puts like the cookies next to her bed, and he stands outside, and he's like, "Come down and meet me." And I mean, it's such like this like aggressive like emotional abuse in the Eleventh Doctor. Yeah. And I'm sorry, like that's that's how I see the Eleventh Doctor, and it's so distancing for me that I think that whole era just A.K.A. You know, why I hate Moffat. I mean, and, and Moffat writes him that way, and I think that. Uh, you know, maybe that was kind of the boyish charm stuff that he saw in Matt Smith that, like, he was trying to, but... Yeah, boyish charm. Be kind of rapey. Like, <laughs> that's my issue with Moffat. Um, but I think the Twelfth Doctor has been better. I don't think that the Twelfth Doctor has those characteristics. No, um, he, I mean, and, he, had, he has his own issues, which we talked about. In, but, in our and let discussion. me just talk about Peter Capaldi in this episode. I yeah. really love him in this story. I love that 
he just finds it. I love that he's being kind of a Grinch and that if he is going to have some kind of relationship with the TARDIS that's poking fun at him, like, if that's the reality we're in, sure, why not? This is a Christmas special. Which always have these kind of broad jokes. And I, I, I forgive a lot in the Christmas specials. Right, that, and so, you know, and I kind of love that he keeps telling River, like, I'm the doctor, and she's like, no, I understand, you're the surgeon here for this, and it it plays at trying to have a who's on first humor, and I'm fine with that, and I like that he kind of seems to think it's surreal when they land in the snow and there is a... A head in a bag. A head in a bag that is like, I will destroy you. I will kill all... I will <laughs> it, bathe feels in like, the blood. it feels like leftover Strax dialogue, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's... And he, and Peter Capaldi just lays there and he laughs and it feels so genuine. And that moment with River Song just not believing him and being kind of like in her own journey and, you know, taking off... Like, that feels like a younger relationship. And how he's just like, oh my god, this is such a mess. But this is River, and I love her. I know that I love her. Like, I know that we are together all these times. And his re- reaction to River makes me like River that a lot more. Right. I mean, I... I... I was kind of, the best version of this in my head yeah. was sort of like a uh, Cary Grant, Audrey Hepburn, like charade yeah. kind of story, like a, a Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn kind of thing, you know, uh-huh. like where, where there's like a uh, like a Howard Hawks, like romantic comedy um, kind of, uh, and there is witty kind repartee of a, back and forth. Almost vibe and to that. There's a little bit of that here, but it's not as, I mean, people always say Moffat's got that like ear for dialogue and that really, really clever stuff, and there's... It's not terrible, but it's definitely not to that level that I think if Stephen Moffat could do anything well, it would be, you know, these two actors doing, like, witty lines back and forth to each other. And I really wanted more of that. It wasn't nearly as clever as it could have been. Right. And um, um, that's what I think is ultimately always disappointing. I really wanted River Song to catch on in that moment. She should have caught on a lot faster. She, I mean, and the I fact think it's that a good she, scene when yeah. she does. I think that... that like that moment where like oh we're in the we're in this pile of shit and now like oh congratulations <laughs> you know yeah. like, uh i think is uh it's a good scene but i wish it had come earlier so we'd had more of the doctor of the 12th doctor and river working together knowing who each other were yes and so it it is almost just about like proportions <laughs> right of like why do we spend such a long time drawing this out when this is where I would have liked to see more. And that's why, okay, like, so part of the reason I'm talking about this episode in this way is if it did anything, it did help me understand a little bit better why people like River Song. Yeah. Um, It did let me like her a little bit better, but it did make me hate the writing of her even more. Um, Because we did finally get this moment where you have this build up to this romantic relationship and yes it is a grand sweeping gesture to be like we crashed here i'm gonna give some guy this diamond we're gonna just like squip this flip the switch on it i know it's cheesy but it's the christmas special well it's also like wasn't this diamond supposed to go back to these people the suppressed population i know and river's using this as just a bargaining tool against it like you know i know 
So like we we gloss over a fucking ton of shit to get here, but I I ultimately I'm like, but Christmas. And then I'm I like, hand okay, I hand it to this guy in like construction work, like a, a rescue worker, and say, hey, build a restaurant here. And he's like, he's not just gonna take it and then use the reward to go buy what he wants to. Like suddenly he's yeah. Like again, back to anytime there's like mind control. Now I'm thinking of Kilgrave because it's like yeah, build a restaurant here. Here's the money you're gonna need to do it. I know, and he's like mind controlling know, this guy, know, you know. I know, but Christmas and then this, makes this it restaurant okay. in the middle of fucking nowhere, you know. But it's beautiful and amazing, well, and only really fancy people and, go there, and only like super rich people get to go there, and you know, like rich people committing genocide. We'll get there in a minute. Um. Oh, there's so much wrong, but the fact that we finally get written into the plot that they get to spend 24 years together as a couple at least gives me some kind of like oh at one point they must have some real relationship building and i don't know like that i was like okay i could see if this is near the beginning of her storyline and they spend two decades getting to know each other then a lot of other things make more sense to me I don't think I'm supposed to think it's at the beginning of her storyline, but if I just tell myself it is, then suddenly I like her a little bit more. So that's I'm, fair. I'm going to go with my headcanon, because that's what Moffat's writing is all about, right? It's all, it's all about, you're supposed to <laughs> you're supposed to just go with it. And that's go the, with it. You're and, supposed to just yeah. go with it. Um, so if I just give up and go with it, If I, if I give up any sense of critical faculty and just try to accept what's given to me, like mush through a straw being force fed into my esophagus, then I get nut- I get nutritional value from it. Like that that's kinda how I treat the uh, some of this Moffat canon. And man, it's so pretty. This episode is is beautiful. It's um, so pretty. Douglas McKinnon directed this. He did uh, some of my favorite directed episodes. I was uh, he did Listen, he did Flatline, um he did I uh, think River looks better here than she River yes. has some nice cleavage during a big chunk of this as well. Well, and she looks tough in some scenes, and even her her ball gown, which I've heard a lot of people talk about, um, it is both glittery, it is both glittery and girly, but it is a very strong looking dress, and it it like very well displays the fact that Alex Kingston is fucking toned as hell. She looks great. And I mean, I, I don't mean to kind of be um, that I, guy, you know, kind of talking about Alex Kingston's looks, but I mean, she looks great in this story, and yeah. uh, she, she's, a, she's a great actress. I don't have any I don't have any issues with the way that she performs it, or the no. way Capaldi performs it. No. All the acting is fine. It's all like the writing underneath it that doesn't justify right. the, the performances. I'd really love to see Again, going through the list and being like, man, every single River Song story is written by Stephen Moffat. Like, what if he'd given this character to another writer? What I if Jamie know. Matheson um, had been able to write a uh, a River Song story? You know, what What if we had a woman? What if Sarah Dollard had written the River Song story? And that's the thing. Who knows? Maybe she'll get to have a life on Big Finish. What if it had been River Song and Face the Raven instead of uh, uh, Maisie Williams? I have thought about if me had been another regeneration of River Song. Yeah, instead of the master, it could have been the master. Or, yeah. You know, anyway. anyway, there's a lot done here that that lets me inside of the River Song fandom a little bit, and I I I I'm thankful 
to Moffat for even though self-righteously he like talks about the titles of his episode as as sounding like oh that sounds interesting and blah 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 blah. it's like stop patting yourself on the back already um but i appreciate that this episode did seem to be addressed to some of the criticisms of the character i I think so and i i i think you know overall i I mean we're sounding really negative on this um I took it as like, oh, it's it's a Christmas story. They're all kind of broad and kind of silly. Yeah. I don't think. I mean, there were a couple of the Christmas episodes that I think are pretty decent. Um, mm-hmm. I like the Christmas Invasion um, because I can't dislike anything with Harriet Jones in it. Basically, um, I like uh, Voyage of the Damned uh, better than um, a lot of other people do. Yeah. Um, but that's because it feels a lot less schmaltzy than a lot of the other ones. Um, and I like that this one took an opportunity to try and build a character because yeah. many of them don't. But but overall the the Christmas specials are kind of they're 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 kind of forgettable for me. Like the, I I don't love them, I don't hate them. I just they're they're kind of dumb, they're kind of big and broad and they're just kind of I don't know. And I think I liked this more because it felt like if I just take my thinking cap off for a while and you know accept that this is a Christmas story. Mm-hmm. Um and not try and push it too hard to make it make sense like this is it's it's a little bit of a, a romantic comedy um love actually doctor who <laughs> yes it is and because it has terrible ideas about relationships the same way love actually does yeah i mean if you accept it as kind of big dumb romantic comedy and like you're supposed you, you know it's yeah the the things that like the moffat fans will always say is that these episodes that the you know, Moffat's version of Doctor Who is very metatextual and it's very it's meant to be commenting on genre, like at all times. It's it's always commenting on itself. You know, if you take these as genre tropes that Moffat is playing with, like so he's doing like the kind of old school Howard Hawks romantic comedy rapid fire dialogue, but he's doing it through the lens of Doctor Who, I guess you could kinda of like it, it it feels like a more it does behave better. It does kind of act as a, as a more um, cohesive piece of narrative, if you consider it to be constantly meta narrative. Like it's never it's never about what it says it's about. It's about the self reflexive narrative. I don't think I can view that this way. I just I don't accept it as like a fundamental way of viewing. What I'd like to do is kind of move away from this a little bit. I, I did want to I just kind of mention uh, I have three big topics I want to kind of cover. Uh-huh. Um, the first thing, just because I think it's easy, is that we do kind of have this weird mix of tones. I think that's that again that that harkens back to the Eleventh Doctor era and just kind of where there's a genocide happening and then there's like happy-go-lucky um, <laughs> romantic comedy happening at the same time, uh-huh. and we seem to elide past the awfulness in order to focus on the the happy stuff. Yeah. Um. This is probably the one. I mean, I I will say good things and and bad things about Murray Gold, but I think this is really a moment where Murray Gold is just completely falls down on the job. Yeah. Because this score is just hammering into your head how you're supposed to feel at every moment. I mean, the a good score, especially for this kind of material, should kind of fade into the background and you're just kind of following the emotions of the characters. This is like straight up top. He's really doing that kind of bum, 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 you know, kind of. Well, and what this is goofy and happy. Bum, 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 you know, we finally get we finally get a serious moment with um the singing towers, and it's meant to be 
this weird unearthly sound of a chord that is made by wind blown through, you know, the this specific kind of mineral or rock. And uh, he does something that he does often, which he uses a voice to create uh, an undescribable sound. And he's done this before, and it hasn't bothered me. The oud song. You've 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 had kind of kind of uh, vocalizations as is unearthly sounds before. I mean, what you're saying is that like why would why would this process of uh, wind moving through these rock structures create a voice? That's kind of the the question you're asking. Yeah. So there's that, and the conversation around it seems to make it really important. I mean, I think I think that stuff is beautiful. I, I actually that bothers me a lot less than the like the big like you know it almost feels like a cartoony 90s movie score like it feels like like 90s robin williams movie yeah kind of you know like a t- like the santa claus it feels like it's like score listed from the santa claus in places you know like oh look tim allen grew a big beard because he's really santa claus you know like yeah it feels just it's overly broad it's kind of the you know and and, and i feel like and i guess for me that was it was overly broad the rest of the time and during the serious moments it felt like I felt like he was just copying what he did in other in other serious moments. There is. I was looking on the TARDIS wiki page, and apparently, like elements of this score are taken from earlier bits of his score. So, like when um, the Doctor gives River the Sonic Screwdriver, parts of like uh, Amy's uh, theme play, because it's like, oh, Amy is uh, you know River's mother, and so there's like so there are like kind of bits of stuff that's supposed to hint at stuff that you're that you've already seen. For me, it's just kind of, I don't know, it, it felt like it got in the way, and I feel like the score issue kind of highlights the tone problem well, for me. Well, and it, if we're supposed to be taking everything that meta, it's I mean, like... The, the, the people who, the, like, the, 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 the academic people who will defend Moffat uh-huh. almost universally use the, it's all meta text defense. Like, that, that is the text that they use. Clara, bossy just, control freak, which yeah. is the thing that I hate the most about like anybody talking about Clara ever is to call her a bossy control freak. Yeah. That she's a control freak about the way her narrative is constructed. Like, that's literally the defense that I hear. Very, very bright people who I like personally will use that argument. That Clara is bossy and a control freak about how her narrative is going to end. Can you make that argument? Sure. Can you make the argument we're making? Yeah. Which one do I feel like holds more water? Well, and ultimately, the one we're making. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, I mean, mean it is like like that's kind of where the and again we're gonna get into. It's that, an I opinion think. difference, and um, I, I get I mean, that it's but, an aesthetic difference to some degree. You know, yeah. it is it is a kind of a question of like how do you want to view this? Through what lens do you want to view this? Yeah. For me, the meta text argument. I'm sorry, we're talking about it right now because I didn't intend to. Um, it doesn't hold weight in terms of its, like, ultimately, it doesn't have enough meat behind it to really, like, The yeah. Simpsons. In a world where The Simpsons exist, why should I take Stephen Moffat seriously as a metatextual communicator? Right. In a world where Dan Harmon exists, why should and I take, that's what I'm saying, you know, like, if, if your goal is to do each episode is an experiment in a different genre, then you have community. Right. You have a surreal show, like that accepts that it is surreal, mm-hmm. and the meta text is actually a part of the text. 
Right. Um, well, it's it's that self reflexivity. It's that you know, yeah. The, the narrative teaches you how to interpret it. If 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 we have a narrative that isn't teaching us how to interpret it, it is a fault of the narrative. Right. It is not a fault of the you know um, okay. we're not reading it right. Right. So just to, just to kind of wrap up here briefly, like so your issue with the metatextual argument. Relate that to Husbands of River Song. Why is Husbands of River Song? Why does that not work as meta text? Like essentially commenting on like old romantic comics. If we were to accept that River Song is a completely surreal character, and that she kind of exists out of order, mm-hmm. and that becomes a part of her characterization, we cannot make her stupid about certain things. About well, the man who gave me knew that this diary would have the right amount of pages and there aren't many pages left. And uh, there, there are too many times that she is dumb within the story that it feels like um, if it was truly a meta textual commentary, you'd have river commenting on it more. You'd have river be more self-aware. You'd have, right. She, she's self-aware enough to know that her diary is almost over and so her story is almost done, but not self-aware enough to to actually do anything about it. Like, right. And, and, and so it's it's and you she, could you could write that as like a Doctor Manhattan character who could see the strings but still is on strings, you know? Yeah. So But they're not have, doing that either. You no. Know? Instead you have a grand sweeping gesture of him saying, Alright, you're knocked out. I'm gonna go make this restaurant happen. And we're going to spend 24 years together, and that's going to be our relationship. Congratulations. I love you. Now that you said it, I can't get it out of my mind. It feels much more Kilgravey and much more I've taken away the agency of this character than than what I wanted for River Song and the Doctor. And, and so if that's your meta text, your meta text is sexist. You know? Um, and I... I- I don't disagree. So, like, if you're making a metatextual argument, like, that's fine. I'm still going to have the same disagreement about it. Moving on. Moving on. I, you know, this, this is, we could, we could go on with this, but I, I think, um, I think we made our point on this. I've got two other big topics I want to cover. Yeah. And, uh, you get to pick which one we do first. Oh, joy. Do you want to talk about polyamory or genocide? Why you gotta put me in a position where I actually want to talk about genocide first? <laughs> Let's talk about genocide. Let's talk about genocide. Genocide is always a bad thing. Genocide is bad. We are anti-genocide on this podcast. Anti-genocide. We take a firm political position that genocide is bad. Yes. I really wish that uh, this episode did the same thing. Yeah, no kidding. What's interesting is that this is more politicized in certain ways and kind of leftist kind of thought ways than almost anything else that Stephen Moffat has written in kind of at least a surface-level way. Yeah. Um, you know, the Doctor refuses to bow to King Hydroflax without knowing who he is even uh, and makes, a you know, the uh, the useless stratum of society sort of thing, you know, um, which is very, I thought, a very uh, just kind of nicely done, Doctor, to make that, like, explicitly yeah. a political point. Um, and then later on, there is the... Um, you know, you kind of get the bit about the, the market crash and the, the banks and that sort of thing. Um, you kind of get some stuff, uh, you know, going on to this flight that is uh, filled with murderers and, uh, genocidal maniacs. You know, this is where genocide goes to, goes to relax. Yeah. The idea of putting the doctor in that situation, 
I mean, I the very first time we saw this, I mean, you know, I literally, I just hit pause and went, any other doctor would burn this place to the, to the ground, like immediately. That that is that is what the doctor does. Um, and he did kind of do it, even well, though he tried to save the people too. I, I th- well, the the real doctor would he would want to try to save them. I, I mean. Yeah. I think it ends fairly well, but the idea that he's then going to sit and dine in this restaurant, yeah. and that he's River has been to this place many times and uses it as as her own. I mean, I think the amorality of River is something that I think we really should have explored more in the River story. Well, I think and it, it's like I think it makes more sense in Melody's storyline. Well, before you mean before she kind of wants to love the doctor and let's kill Hitler or whatever. Yeah, it, it makes more sense when she. If she were to be in a point in her timeline where she has gone from being a trained killer or whatever um, to learning to love, maybe she's still somewhere in between on the morality of it all. And I buy River as kind of a sociopath. I buy River as someone who's just kind of amoral. She just wants, she's off having adventures, she's off doing her thing. Yeah. More of kind of an Indiana Jones character, kind of reluctant hero. I buy that from River. I don't buy that from the doctor. The no. doctor, the doctor has a very clear moral compass, which he, from I mean, from the Hartnell era, he yeah. is he has been, except for in his very earliest episodes, which we've kind of talked about a bit here and there. The doctor always has a a strong moral sense, at least when he's written to character. I mean, you can find moments where he does terrible things because somebody wasn't paying attention. But I mean, the the kind of conflict between this kind of moral righteousness and then kind of situational complexity which we talked about in our Planet of the Ute episode, mm-hmm. um, you know, is very much a characteristic of what Doctor Who is about. And so the fact that, again, going back to the Matt Smith era, which I feel like this is taking us back to the Matt Smith era to some degree, writing the Doctor as this kind of amoral sociopath who's kind of egged on to do the good things because his companions kind of make him do it, feels like a little bit of an abandonment of the character to me. Well, and what I thought was brilliant is I think that Capaldi plays it so that up until the point where River basically is like, the doctor isn't here, go ahead, scan and find him, you know. He's playing sociopath mm-hmm. because he's just following River to see what she's doing. Sure. At least that is how I interpret Capaldi's performance of it. Um, do I think it's dragged out, blah, 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 all those things we already said? Yes. Um well, he's laying low a little bit. I mean, he yes, he is, he is kind of he is kind of letting River rule, you know, kind of control the narrative to see what's going on, you know. But I think then when she finally recognizes him as the Doctor, it does change a bit. But he doesn't call her out on her shit, and I feel like he would. The, well, the fact that she's doing this, she's doing the same moral thing. She's not returning the diamond to the people that. Yeah originally owned it so she's being just as much a a greedy oppressor as uh-huh. anybody on that ship is yeah implies a certain degree of you know if he, ultimately they want to get to the big romantic ending and they don't want to confront these issues of like what is the morality of like stealing from these yeah. you know oppressors from these genocidal maniacs which i mean let's talk about the fact that when we're first introduced to hydroflax he's yeah. a uh you know he's this giant dude he's this you know, he's uh-huh. got four billion followers who so all worship him. Uh-huh. You know, and um, I was reminded a little bit of the, um, you know, he's got these, he's a harsh ruler, he's got these loving subjects. Yeah. I'm reminded of the Tivolians from, yes. and, and the, uh, the the Fisher King 
Yeah, and then you sort get of the, the same blue trope. mole waiter people. And then you get uh, sorry, I, I had to look them up because I couldn't I couldn't find the listing. You mean the, the blue mole waiter people? Well, the blue mole ra- waiter people are one thing, but they're just the the whole reason the wait staff is all supposed to be like maniacs and genocidal people themselves is so the ship can crash and you don't have to feel bad about any of them. I mean, you know, right. that's the right. that's the reason this exists is because he knows he's gonna crash the ship and he doesn't want you to feel bad about it. And it even gives the Doctor a line where he says, you know, none of them were worth saving anyway, which again feels like a very not doctory thing to do. So not doctory. Um, the main guy, the guy with the, uh, the the line on his head that pulls the ball out of his head guy. Oh, yeah. And then his followers are all kind of worshippers of this Hydroflax character as well. Yeah. His name is Scratch, um, and they are the Shoal of the Winter Harmony. That's the, the group he represents, um, which is... And it's, it's kind of a cool name. It's a cool concept. I mean, the idea that this Hydroflex character has these followers, but he also says, you know, Scratch says, you know, Hydroflex came in blood and blood and glory or something like that. And I mean, he's basically like saying, like, he came and subjugated us and ruled. I mean, maybe we're the ruling classes now, but we were the lower classes before. And like Hydroflex came and like killed all of our enemies and maybe that's the same we don't give enough context to really get it but these are i mean they actually worship hydroflax for his for the fact that he's a, a brutal dictator yeah for his bloodshed and I, but, but i think the four billion followers the people that we see they, they look more like religious adoration they look more like um yeah i mean it, well it reminded he's a me king like, he's he's not a president oh, he's no, no. not he's, a you he's know he's king. specifically marked a king and i think that's important the doctor has uh even the even in Moffat era, who I don't think we've seen one in the Twelfth Doctor era, but the Doctor has genuflected to kings before. Let's just leave that out there, you know. I know, um, I know. I think that in this case, what you're seeing is um, the big crowds. They look like uh, when when a pope is uh, being selected, and the like crowds that show up outside the Vatican. Like that's what that reminded me of: is these people, just these supplicants who are watching in bated breath to see what happens to their um, beloved religious figure or whatever. And uh, again, that's an interesting idea. But then once once we're kind of not being told how great this guy is, we kind of leave that behind. And then Hydroflex becomes a figure of fun. He becomes a figure of, he's, he's just kind of... Like and Hydroflex crashes in a ship and his billions of worshippers are gone within 400 years so that his body has is now like a fucking waiter. That's I didn't even think of that, but you're right. It doesn't that doesn't make a lot of sense. People, when I talk about Moffat's consequences, this is what I'm talking about. They don't make sense. If they make sense to you, great. So River Song dug up the the crash, right? And but then a surprise that they're coming near Derelium. Yeah. So. River Song, she says, I dug up this, this I dug crash. You up I dug you up in yeah. 400 years, which has to be on Derillium, because that's where they crashed, right next to the Singing Towers. But it's in surprise that they're going to Derillium. Again, it's, 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 everything makes sense in the moment, but not the second you take any kind of larger look at it. But to me, the big thing is, you're taking, and where I was kind of going with, with some of the tone in this genocidal thing is, you've got all these genocidal maniacs, who are treated as figures of fun. And Hydroflax is the, the clearest example of this. Yeah. Because at first he's kind of this big villain type, and then once he's separated from his body, they're making fun of this guy in a bag who's making jokes about, I will destroy you, and I will kill you, yeah. I will, your your blood will run down the streets, or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
again, it's it's sort of the same problem as Strax, is that like but but in this case it's even worse because Strax is just kinda one guy. This guy is I mean, basically it's the same problem you run into where the the eleventh doctor runs into Hitler and oh let's put Hitler in a cupboard. And he runs into um Richard Nixon. And Richard Nixon kind of gets to be like kind of a jokey figure for a while. Well, and I and Winston think, Churchill gets to be and you know, I think a hero. That there and, is there are two responses to bullies, mm-hmm. right? You can make fun of them and prey on their insecurity. Yep. Or you can call them a bully and ask them to do better. My Doctor Who calls bullies out to their face and says, "But you don't have to be a bully." If you continue to be a bully, I'm gonna fucking knock your ass off. And and I think like that's that's kind of the heart of it for me. Moffat's bullies are laughed at, and that's how they are conquered. Is you are then a bully yourself, and it makes sense, you know. I mean, for Jack, uh, you know, <laughs> Marxist politics, I guess in some ways. I I, uh, I kind but, of like the idea that that once the head of state, the the um the brutal dictator is removed from his body once he is <clears throat> once he's decapitated yeah. once he no longer has a head or his head is no longer yeah. connected he is now powerless and he becomes a figure of fun kind of a a little yeah. object i mean there's some metaphorical resonance there but because we never really deal with the enormity of the crimes and because we never really deal with the enormity of the situation it feels like we're kind of alighting past some of these issues and yeah. we're you know and i don't know it's, followers. it's the decision like it's the decision to make him a genocidal monster you know that makes this more difficult if he was just you know the grafin decay right from from the rebos operation the grafin decay is absolutely portrayed as this yeah kind of kind of maniac in this monster but he's been deposed and he's this kind of pathetic figure and that's because the character is kind of written Holy is, is is all one piece, and we kind of get both the terror that he can prescribe and his kind of patheticness at the same time. For uh, the Fisher King, which we mentioned before, or mm-hmm. I mentioned before, um, from the Under the Lake two-parter, you kind of get like he's kind of big and scary, but he also wants his delight kind of looks ridiculous. I mean, so the idea of kind of putting these two things next to each other, I, I like, and I think that that's interesting. I just think that Moffat has such a a clumsy hand with handling this this kind of material. Yeah, it just it just doesn't quite make sense to me. Again, are there things that I liked? Did I did I get through it and kind of I, I was okay watching it a second time. I mean, there is stuff that I genuinely do like about it. Yep. Um, I wish Moffat wrote characters more differently because I really enjoy the different character design. Mm-hmm. Um, but they all act kind of the same. Uh <laughs> But that's that's not their fault. Well, and there there's some good character actors in this. I mean, Matt Lucas, um, who is a uh, a well known guy. Um, I know him actually. There was this really terrible Comedy Central show in the mid two thousands called Crobman Dune and these Flaming Sword of Destiny. Oh yeah. It ran for six episodes. Yeah. And he was the main bad guy in that. Oh my god. And he was the only, pretty much the only good thing in it. You know. Oh, that show was awful. I that show was terrible, and I literally like. Spotted him right off, and I went, "That's that's the guy." That's you know? that dude. Um, knowing him from that is a little bit like uh, knowing Louis C.K. for like the uh, you know the cameos he's done in like Parks and Recreation. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, although Parks and Recreation is a much better show than Crumbman doing the Flaming Sword of Destiny. Don't go look that up if you haven't seen it. It's terrible. But Matt Lucas. Was it is good terrible, it. but I loved it. 
It did have a hot girl in it, so there was that. It was awful. It was awful. In a truly enjoyable way. Anyway, anyway um... He's good in this. Yeah. And, I mean, there's some good character actors in this. So. I recognize some dude who was in Xenon, so there's that. Well, that's, um... You done talking about genocide? Yeah, I'm done talking about genocide. Yeah, well, we've moved past the show on this uh, episode, you know, we're... No longer, no more, no more Hitler talk. Really, a very limited amount of Hitler talk for this episode. Yeah, thank you. Anyway, moving we on. Barely mention Hitler at all. Want to talk about polyamory for a few minutes? Sure. <laughs> so, um, I mean, Rivers explicitly shown as a polyamorous character in this in this episode. Kinda. I I mean, to the degree that Moffat could write a polyamorous character, you know, River is shown as a polyamorous character. I mean. She has three husbands in this episode. One of whom she married for a diamond in his brain. Yep. So, like, I'm not going to say that's an accurate representation of a real relationship. That's oh, no, a not at all. Not at all. Fake relationship. So, so that's, that's something that she's done on the side. Yeah. Then she has Ramon, who she's in, in, in a, I mean, they make out. Like, they're clearly physically into each other. They're, yeah. Like, th- this is He's a two way relationship. Yeah. You know, um, you don't get the sense that she's. Manipulated him into it. Yeah. Although she did wipe his memory because he got like clingy or something. Like he, he like got annoying. Like I said, this seems like a much more immature River Song. I mean, th- this feels like that is not that is not a uh, responsible adult version yeah. of a relationship. And also, whenever you're talking about like wiping people's memory and controlling their minds, yeah, Kilgrave again. Kilgrave. Um, you were just gonna. I mean, it's. I think Kilgraving is now going to be part of our regular vocabulary. Yeah, so. Kilgraving. It's just like gaslighting, but even um, even uh, more recognizable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but then she's married to the doctor. You know, I think that there is this thing, and, and I I want to give this as much credit as I can give it. Yeah. A long-lived time-traveling character who goes on adventures and is, and is often separate. I mean, basically, she and the doctor have a long-distance relationship. Right. Right. And so the idea that she would desire other kinds of companionship. Absolutely. And um, they even have a debate towards the end or kind of a back and forth about all the different people they fucked, which is, yeah. you know. Which was really confusing for Shayna. Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure they implied that Stephen Fry and River Song were together. And I don't know how that works unless River Song was a dude at some point. Yeah, I mean, I, I maybe like we then, should tweet at Stephen yeah, Fry and see how yeah, he felt about Stephen that. Stephen Fry, you got mentioned. Who do you think you were fucking and why? Or has Stephen Fry made a joke before that he's gay but he'd fuck River Song and I, I just am not that cool? Maybe, maybe there's, I mean, I don't know, like, what, but that felt like a really weird thing because Stephen Fry is gay. Yeah, so gay. And the idea that he was with River Song feels like a diminishing Stephen Fry's like identity as a person. It seems like there are so many other people you could make that joke about. It wouldn't have to be Stephen Fry. Yeah, you know? so confusing for Shayna. So confusing. Uh, I mean, and I think that it really is just like Steve, like Moffat just didn't think are, about it. Yeah, well, and, you know, maybe somebody on the other side of this is thinking, like, why are you so hung up on this stupid detail? Well, to me, it's not stupid. It stood out, and it... I mean, it, it pokes you in the eye a little bit. It distracted me from the rest of what was going on, yeah. I mean, you had you made me like rewind it like four times. I'm like, what are we doing? Hold on, Stephen Fry? Because it's such a weird thing. Like, if you know anything about Stephen Fry, you know he's gay. And you know that he's... 
Well, I mean, Stephen Fry is a notable character. He's been around in British culture for years. It'd be like it'd be like making a. a it's like making Stephen Fry comes with certain cultural baggage. Yeah. And to just throw his name in there like that, it just feels weird. I mean, John Cleese would have been a better joke. Totally, you know? totally. I mean, do I do I know John Cleese's sexuality? No. Therefore, it it seems like a little. <laughs> well, and John Cleese appeared on Doctor Who in the seventies, and that would have City been of funny. Death, so it would have been you know at least there's like that kind of like oh yeah you there know. there are a lot of opportunities where it just falls a little short of whatever goal it was going for. And so, so I, I I question it. And and that's part of my issue. That's probably my biggest issue. Well, it, it throws in this... And, and I don't want to keep harping on this gag because it really is yeah. just a gag. But it throws it in there and then we're expected to take it seriously as canon. Right. But it completely goes again. Unless it's another Stephen Fry. Like we're just... Oh, it's Stephen Fry the accountant in London or something. You know, like yeah. it's... I mean, what do you think? I mean, we, we've kind of talked around this a little bit. I mean, as, as polyamorous people, I was, uh, as a polyamorous person, I was definitely interested to see how they were going to portray this kind of thing. Um, the idea of kind of treating the kind of river and doctor relationship as a kind of long distance one, like an open relationship, I think is interesting. I think that is like the only place you could take this if you're going to pursue kind of romantic reactions that and very clearly, River has a romantic life and a sexual life outside of the Doctor. So the idea of exploring that, I think, would have been really interesting. Um, I wish we had gotten a little bit more feedback on the Ramon-Doctor relationship and kind of how he feels about that. But the Doctor is very negative about um, Ramon as a, as a romantic partner to River and seems to kind of not take it seriously. I mean, he's, he's like judging River for being married to Ramon when... He has his own dalliances he's had with, like, Marilyn Monroe and, you know, plenty of other people canonically well, in the show. And for me, I guess the reason that that list makes sense to me is, well, if the conversation they're having is, you married this one? <laughs> and she's saying, well, we all make mistakes and do weird things, and they're throwing names at each other. Right. So, like, well, you did this person. I was like, yeah, well, but you did that person. It's like, yeah, well, you, so like, it's, it, it's not that there's one, it's, it's some kind of backwards, like, slut shaming a little bit. But I can imagine a couple being that way about, like, well, there was that person that you're not so proud <laughs> well, you of. Well, you dated. and I, you and I might do that back and forth. Right. And go, well, you dated so and so, like, and that ended right. up being a disaster, you know, yeah. like. And, you know, whatever story goes with Marilyn Monroe, whatever story goes with Stephen Fry. And apparently they've both been with Cleopatra, but separately. If that's what that implied. Um, there, There's just a lot going on there. And to kind of just have it so flippantly. Well, but that's how Moffat treats the sexual content of his characters. Right. Because it, it's always, I mean, to this day, Clara's queerness is up in the air. You can interpret it however you want. Yeah. I, you know, which is which is not the way we want this kind of representation. No. And this is the this is this was the chance to really do yeah. polyamory in this story. Well, and to and and I mean, Rivers, and to not portray it as just like, well, I dated this guy because he was cute, 
and I married this guy, but it was really just for the diamond in his head. But I really love you, but you don't love me back. And I've accepted that. So I go otherwere for love. And like, yeah, sure, there are polyamorous relationships that exist like that. They're unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And sure, there are lots of unhealthy relationships. But well, I, I can I can accept the fact that since the doctor and Rover don't see each other very often, that they don't have the ability to communicate clearly about like who they're being with and that sort of thing and clearly they each know about each other's relationships at least after the fact i mean you know but the fact that the fact that ramon is portrayed as being mind wiped in terms of like his knowledge of their marriage and the fact that the doctor has a very negative first reaction to the idea that river could marry someone besides himself before he even knows it's king hydroflax you know he's he right. kind of it's like you're married to someone else rah, 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 you know yeah and then when he finally kind of meets Ramon, who's a decent enough guy. Like, there's no, yeah. like, I don't have any issue with um, her being married to Ramon. I mean, they're working together. They're doing their thing. They're traveling together. Clearly, that, that feels like an actual healthy, I mean, in a lot of ways, that we want little we see about it, except for the mind-wiping bullshit, that feels like a healthier and more mature relationship than she had with the 11th Doctor ever. Beep, 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 News in. What's up? I read the TARDIS wiki. The entire point of having Stephen Fry referenced is probably a jab in his face because Stephen Fry said that the show, apparently Stephen Fry in 2010, uh, criticized Moffat's Doctor Who and said, well, it's not really a show for adults. <laughs> well, it's not. <laughs> and um, Especially Stephen with Moffat of, like, said it, it is a show for adults, but it is a show for family with their children, something like that. To know that Stephen Fry is politically active, where we were in politics five years ago, and what else Stephen Fry might have been talking about, where he would be commenting on BBC and its general production values, and why what the BBC chooses to produce um, should be more diverse. And um, yeah, I like Stephen Moffat even less right now, because it feels like that was just a joke. To say, that's, a, like, that's a jab at oh Stephen Fry. Look at how adult my version of this relationship is. Yeah. When really it's it's it's, it's immature and stupid. I mean, I um, know I've seen some polyamorous people who really responded to this and thought like I mean it's representation and I'm gonna yes. give it that. And I I was talking about like how the Ramon relationship feels healthy and I I like that. I don't like the fact that the twelfth Doctor responds in a kind of negative nonplussed way at the fact that she's in this other relationship. Yeah. Because that's something he should just accept, especially if he fucking went off and married Marilyn Monroe and all that sort of thing. As um, he did. As he did. <laughs> or was, uh, you know, fucking Madame de Pompadour while he was in love with Rose back in, you know, he season two. He just said snog. Well, I'm, even, even any kind of physical romantic relationship. With, I, know, you know. I know, I know. Um, eventually we'll talk about Girl in the Fireplace, but not today. I don't know, the, the polyam stuff is, I'm glad it's represented. I wish it was represented better. Like, I'm glad, like, we do well, officially I'm... have a polyamorous character on Doctor Who. Like, explicitly polyamorous character. Like, there's no doubt in my mind. But I, I, I mean, but at the same time, I don't really ex- accept it as that, because to some degree, it is treated like a con. Right. And well, and it's true. Well, for me, it's not, it's not uh, Hydroflex. It's Ramon. If Ramon wasn't in this story, I would feel a lot worse about it. But the fact that Ramon and the Doctor are both there, they're both explicitly in-universe, married to River. She clearly has feelings for both of them at the same time. 
the fact that Ramon, by the way, like the one person of color in the entire story, except for the the receptionist at the end, who ends up with his head on the body of Hydroflax and gets to be a waiter while the doctor spends time with River. Yeah. Because the doctor is our main character and clearly much more important than the person of color, than the the man who's been with River, like kind of at least when we when the story yeah. begins and is in a supporting role. That I don't like. I mean, this is not a very good and healthy polyamory, but it's polyamory, and I'm I, I think that's a good thing. I, I I have to give it props for that. But it is deeply unhealthy. <laughs> I guess. I mean, sure. I, I hear what you're saying. I just, I am too distracted by the fact that it just, it feels out of place and underwritten. And that is my general argument and complaint with Stephen Moffat's writing. So I I feel like I don't want to beat a dead horse for too much longer. One thing that I do want to say is that I've been watching just on my own the Sarah Jane Adventures, and what it has really made me appreciate was, although the Sarah Jane Adventures is much more written to children, um, I, I will admit that, it is a diverse cast. It has several strong women in terms of dynamic and interesting characters. Well, it's produced by Russell T. Davies. And I mean, to me, and like, it's... it's almost all two-parters. It feels more like classic who. So to have that kind of dynamic of watching that and then coming back and watching the Christmas, the Christmas special, I, I, I will say I viewed this a little bit more harshly because... I, I expected you know. so little from this. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like like literally I was like, this is going to this is going to be physically painful to watch. Stephen Moffat doing a polyamorous thing. You yeah. know? And talking about multiple husbands. This is just going to be painful to sit through and it wasn't. I, I, I quite I mean, I enjoy as much as as stupid as it was, yeah. if I turned off my brain and didn't think about how this connected up with anything and like any of the other stuff. Yeah, no. And it could ignore the politics of it, which are atrocious. I accepted this, and I, I had a good time with yeah. this episode. It, because it's a Christmas episode, yeah, okay, I liked it. It, it definitely fulfilled my requirements for a Christmas episode in, in that it doesn't really have to make sense. No. Um, because it's a Christmas episode. But does that justify the rest of that character's storyline? <laughs> um, so, yeah. Any final thoughts about Husbands of River Song before we kind of wrap up and kind of talk about next year? No, I think that's about it. So, um... 2015 was a kind of a weird year for us personally. Um, we had some highs and lows. Many highs and many lows. Um, but 2016 looks to be on a, you know, we're, we're not quite there yet, but this will be the last episode we put out in 2015. And 2016 hopefully will be better. Um, Stable. But one of the high points of this year for me was this podcast. Absolutely. Um, um, we made a lot of good friends through the podcast. Um, our listenership is going up. We've really been able to kind of find our voice here, and uh, this is this is one of the highlights of my week is recording and, and posting this every week. Quite honestly, I love you. So we're gonna keep we're gonna keep it going, but definitely you know another year. I we did get some positive responses to our Jessica Jones episode. Yeah, I think that uh, we actually got a request or, or at least a, a question. Are you guys gonna do the Daredevil series? <laughs> so we'll see. Yeah, I um, would love to. I'm interested in getting people's thoughts about other stuff they'd like to see us do. Uh, if we are going to kind of step outside of Doctor Who more, and I think we are. Yeah. I mean, so 2016, our plan is to finish the uh, walk through the companions, uh, mm-hmm. which we've been doing. We started this year 
the first episode we put out in 2015 was for the Daleks Master Plan. That's how long we've been working on this. I don't keep track of this shit, yo. I'm just surprised we've been recording for a year. <laughs> we've almost been recording for two years. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, in February it'll be two years. Although wow. we missed, we missed like a couple of months at the beginning and then we missed a month this year where we didn't, we were, yeah. our personal life got busy and we didn't get to record and, and post. But we've been, this podcast is almost two years old. So, Aww, um, go yeah. us. Yeah, we've been doing this, uh, and we've, we've not missed a week in a while. So it's, it's been, we've been doing pretty well on this. But, um, I think, uh, we are talking about different options of how to expand, you know, not to do other stuff besides Doctor Who. And if people have thoughts about what they'd like to hear us do, um, I've, I, you know, I, I think it's it's kind of a, in 2016, we will expand out of Doctor Who a little bit and kind of the way we do that. I'm not sure how I'm going to do that yet, but it will happen. And I just, I, I'd like to thank everybody who, who keeps listening to us. And I would love to get people's thoughts about what they'd like to hear, you know, from us. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you to all of our listeners, to all of our supporters, our, our most avid cheerleaders. You know who you are. We love you. And everybody who's ever sent us a letter, because we do get uh, a fair number. We don't get a lot of letters, but when we get them, I try to, I try to read them and at least respond. Um, I don't read them all on the show, but I, I do try to respond to everything that I yeah. get sent. So if I missed a letter from you, I apologize, but I do try to pay attention to that. But yeah, thank you for listening to us, and this year was rough for us. We hope it wasn't rough for you, and if it was, we hope that you will have a new year filled with uh, some peace and, and optimism, and and always more Doctor Who and uh, awesome shows. So tell us what other awesome shows you'd like to hear us talk about. And, and uh, let us know, because... I've had a lot of people like comment on our Warriors Gate conversation as as one that they particularly liked. Yeah. Which I thought that was a fine. I mean, I actually re-listened to it recently just because I had two or three comments like, like we really like this one. And I don't know that I thought that one was any better or worse than a lot of the other ones we've done around that time. I don't know if it's just like people liked that one. Um, we did talk about sex and Heinlein in that one, so maybe that's the, uh, you know. Do we the, need the to mix. talk about sex and Heinlein more? Would yeah. that make you happy? Maybe it would. Or maybe it's just people like Warriors Gate and it doesn't get enough street cred. That's that's a possibility. Also. So um, if you are listening to this show and you like it a lot, I would uh, appreciate people kind of letting us know which episodes they like from mm-hmm. us and kind of stuff they, you know, in general. Kind of, we like feedback. Yeah. I mean, um, maybe, maybe if we get some money together, we'll do a contest. We'll do a giveaway of, uh, you know. Like we'll make t-shirts or something and give one away at the contest. Yes, original Oi Spaceman shirt. Smile. Does anybody does anybody want an Oi Spaceman t-shirt or a coffee mug? Because uh, I'm sure we could put something together. Yeah. Like a cafe press store or something. Yeah. Yeah, we might get two people to buy it, you know. We're going to enter the capitalist economy with our uh, silly podcast. I'm just going to I'm gonna make a shirt that says uh, hashtag demon poo baby. <laughs> And if anybody buys it, I will feel like I have won at life. So that's my New Year's resolution, and uh, hopefully you guys will stick around for it. Awesome. So yeah, looking forward to 2016. We've got a lot of stuff planned, and uh, we've got some cool guests. Next week, we're going to be covering Modern Undead, and we are going to have a uh, special guest on that, uh, who will remain nameless until I confirm with them that they're actually going to uh, begin. Uh, we are going to do uh, the entire Black Guardian trilogy over the next three weeks. And uh, we do have some new guests coming up in 2016. 
I've I've made plans with at least three people who've never been on the show before who are going to come on at some point in 2016. So wait, did you say Black Guardian? The Black Guardian trilogy, yes. The Black Guardian comes back. <laughs> We're going to talk about him next week in oh. Modern Undead. God damn it! Whoa, 2016, here we come. <laughs> so look forward next week to us talking about the the Black Guardian and black birds on people's heads. And until then, the TARDIS is closed. Bye. Our theme music is Doctor Who Theme on Minimoog by James Bragg. Find his YouTube channel at youtube.com slash hyperdust7 and his website at phoenix-flare.com. Daniel is also a regular host of the They Must Be Destroyed on Site movie podcast, which you can find at tmbdos.podbean.com. You can find all Oi Spaceman episodes on iTunes or at our website, oispaceman.libsyn.com, and our podcast blog is at oispaceman.wordpress.com. You can email us at oispacemanpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, and you can find our individual Twitter accounts at Daniel Lee Harper and Inkyoso. That's I-N-K-Y-O-S-A. Comments and questions welcome. <laughs>